Our precious metal exposure is indeed higher than, than it normally is, um, with gold and silver equities comprising roughly 50% of our weighted portfolio. Otis Gold Corp. is a gold development and exploration company with quality projects in the pro-mining state of Idaho. Otis's flagship Kilgore project has a resource of 961,000 gold ounces, and its recently published preliminary economic assessment demonstrated an impressive post-tax IRR of 53% at $1,500 gold. In addition to the significant expansion potential at Kilgore, Otis is exploring its highly prospective Oakley project. This Carlin-type gold deposit already has an inferred resource in previous near-surface drilling inter intersected 123 meters of 0.69 grams per ton gold. Otis Gold Corp trades in New York under the ticker OGLDF and in Toronto under the ticker OOO, that's triple O. To learn more, go to otisgold.com, that's otisgold.com. Greetings and welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. If you'd like to engage the show, feel free to reach me at bill at miningstockeducation.com. Well, I have the pleasure of speaking with uh, someone that I've listened to over the past several years and have really appreciated his insights. And what I find unique about this person's insights is not just what their insights are, but the age of this person. Uh, We're talking about a fund manager, a successful resource-focused fund manager in his 20s. I'm speaking of Matt Geiger, the managing partner of MJG Capital. Website is mjgcapital.com. With that being said, Matt, welcome to Mining Stock Education. Thanks for having me on the program, Bill. Pleasure to be with you. Let's kick it off by learning a little bit about your background. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that are familiar with you already, but for those that aren't, uh, what's the background of your fund and how do you create value as a fund manager? So the MJG Capital Fund um, is an investment-focused partnership uh, focused exclusively on natural resources. Um, We're we're structured as an LP um, where each of our 25 investors have committed to lock up their funds for a minimum of 10 years. This lockup, in a way, is self-selecting for only the most patient capital, and it enables our fund to stay uh, liquid uh, during hard times and to deploy capital countercyclically. At any given time, we'll hold between 15 to 25 publicly traded positions, as well as warrants from private placements that we participate in. Roughly half of our positions are initiated through open market purchases, with the other half uh, through opportunistic private placements. Uh, at the moment, I'd say roughly 90% of the MJG portfolio is exposed to metal equities, with the balance in agriculture, aquaculture, and water-focused investments. Um, as a fund manager, I add value through individual stock selection. Uh, there are almost 3,000 junior mining companies listed in Canada and Australia alone, and my job as managing partner is to select the top 1% of opportunities out there whether it's through open market purchases or through private placement deals. So, Matt, you're from California, you know, Silicon Valley. Uh, Why are you in mining and not tech? That's a question I get a lot. Um, And unfortunately, I don't have a very concise answer for you. Um, I would say there's really three factors that led me to the space originally. The first was this intuitive sense I've had uh, since a young age uh, that mining and basic materials would be a great profession um, to be involved with over the course of my lifetime. And and this is due to exponentially rising global population on one hand, and then exponentially growing consumption on a per-person basis on the other hand. Now, don't get me wrong, and my viewpoints change on this somewhat, I'm not anticipating an apocalyptic scenario in the next 10 years where we run out of copper or, or oil or phosphate for our fertilizers. That said, I do feel that as a society, 
we, we deeply underappreciate the significance of exponential growth in a world where there's a finite number of resources. And additionally, I think as a society, we have unrealistic expectations that human ingenuity will triumph above all else. So I do think that there will be a rude awakening later in my lifetime, uh, particularly for the uh, millennial generation, which I belong to, which couldn't care less where the metals that they consume come from or where the food and, and vegetables that they consume are grown. So I, I think this is, this is something that will, will gain prevalence over my lifetime and gain recognition. And, and then the second reason has more to do with my contrarian instincts. Um, in Silicon Valley, as you can imagine, uh, natural resource extraction is looked down upon as a dirty and stodgy and old-fashioned industry. Um, this, of course, is ignorant because the inventions that you know we're, we're proud of in the Bay Area, uh, be it smartphones or you know electric car developments or more efficient uh, photovoltaic solar panels, these of course would not be possible without the dozens of metals that are being pulled out of the ground across the world each day. So this major disconnect. Uh, as well as the generational gap which exists in the mining industry, appeal to my contrarian tendencies. Um, I think I can stand out as, as a young fund manager in this field. And then finally, um, I, I've also had this long-held belief that the average investor is far too sensitive to both volatility and cyclicality. Um, this is why mining, which is perhaps the most volatile and cyclical industry in the entire world, aside from perhaps shipping, appeals to me as an investor. Well, it does take the right temperament and the right personality. I do believe it's possible to redefine one's relationship with both volatility and cyclicality and to leverage this for investment success. Um, in my mind, there's no better place to do this than within uh, natural resources, assuming you, of course, have the right mentality. Matt, give us a little more background. How has uh, a young man in his 20s been able to get high net worth individuals to lock up their funds with you for a decade? How, how did that process work? Sure. So, so it was a lot of trial and error, to be honest. Um, I remember when I first uh, raised the fund, um, and I, I did admittedly start too early. The fund launched in late 2011, which in hindsight was quite brutal timing. Um, due to this fund structure and the 10-year lockup, we were able to stay intact through what were very difficult times. But I remember in order to, to get going, you know, I sat down with 60 to 70 different um, individuals and you know, I, I was able to convince nine of them in order to put in small, small checks. So one big advantage that I had as starting as, as, a, as a younger guy is that I don't have a you know, ostentatious, large lifestyle to sustain. So I was able to get going with less than a million dollars um, under management and then build from there with additional investors coming on board as they get more confidence in my stock selection abilities. There are the statesmen of the resource fund management industry, the likes of Adrian Day. Do you have any alter egos or mentors that you think of as you run your fund? Yeah, there, there are a few names that, that come to mind. Um, Adrian Day is uh, certainly one of them. Um, his, his focus and expertise in both the prospect generator and royalty business models really appeal to me. And I try to soak up um, everything I can get with when I'm with Adrian in person. Um, another person that comes to mind is Paul Stevens, who's one of the few Bay Area-based uh, resource investors. Um, Paul's been in the industry for over 30 years, and his original claim to fame was being the largest investor in Robert Friedland's Diamond Fields International when the Voices Bay discovery was made in the 90s. Um, and I really respect Paul um, and his insight into people and, and importantly, integrity. So Paul's been helpful, um, you know, 
focusing on uh, certain management teams uh, that that you can trust and um, uh, deploy capital with. And then he's also been helpful letting me know which which teams to avoid and 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 not invest with. Um, two other quick names that come to mind would be Rick Rule and Adrian. De uh, sorry, Rick Rule and Neil Atched, both from uh, Sprott Global um, USA down in Carlsbad, California. And both of those have been um, major influencers on my um, investment um, profile and then also my due diligence process. I recently read your most recent inv investor letter, and your fund is heavily weighted in gold and silver equities right now. Uh, what's the reason for this? Can you elaborate? Sure. So our precious metal exposure is indeed higher than, than it normally is, um, with gold and silver equities comprising roughly 50% of our weighted portfolio. Just six months ago, for some context, this weighting was closer to 30%. So this is a significant jump in only half a year. That said, this increase has less to do with a concerted effort on my part to beef up our exposure to precious metals and more to do with substantial outperformance of our existing gold and silver holdings within the portfolio. As I mentioned in the letter, I am comfortable being overweight precious metal equities in this market environment where 30% of investment-grade bonds are now yielding below 0%, and where we've just seen our first negative interest rate mortgages out of Denmark. This negative interest rate phenomenon, uh, coupled with record low precious metal exposure among investors in the developed world, leads me to believe that this bull market has plenty of room to run. And the MJG fund is very well positioned if this run in precious metals continues. That said, I don't expect to initiate any new gold or silver positions by the end of this year. I'm more than content, content to continue to hold our existing investments that are delivering results and to sell those where management either goes off the rails or the company gets unlucky with bad uh, results or the share price simply goes too far above what I deem to be fair value. So my focus over the next few months through the end of this year will be to fortify existing base and energy metal positions in the portfolio. I believe that if we don't see a severe global slowdown ahead of the next U.S. presidential election, that we'll see base metals and energy metal equities follow gold and silver higher starting sometime during next year. So do you think that we could continue with a gold bull without the industrial metals participating? I do believe that's possible. Um, I, as mentioned, my base case is that we do not see a sustained global slowdown or a 2008-like liquidity panic. Um, in the next year or two. If this is indeed the case, then industrial metals linked to global economic growth will, will play catch up in the next year. And 2020 could end up being an exceptional year for those of our exploration development positions focused on copper, nickel, cobalt, vanadium, zinc, etc. Um, I do believe we'll, we'll see the standard pattern where gold leads uh, metals higher and then the rest follow. However, I will say that a sustained multi-year slowdown remains a distinct possibility, despite central banks' best efforts around the world to spur further growth. This would be exceedingly bullish um, if we were to see a sustained global slowdown for our precious metal holdings, but the opposite effect would occur for a base and energy metal positions. So there could be serious downside um, in this scenario. Worst of, of both worlds would be a liquidity crisis akin to what we saw in, in 2008 during the great financial crisis. Even though physical gold would likely perform very well in this scenario, um, when you see systemic uh, instability, um, this is not the time to be long gold and silver equities, at least initially. 
Um, these are risk assets after all, and will be treated as such in times of financial panic. So buyer beware if we do see another, or when we do see another financial panic, uh, at least in the initial six months, it won't be smooth sailing for investors in precious metal equities. Only the bullion investors at, at, at the very least will do well. Your investor letter also mentioned uh, energy metals. Which one or two of these are you most optimistic about? So I would define an energy metal to be all metals that are used to either produce, store, or distribute electricity. So this includes the uranium that's used as a feedstock for nuclear power generation or the high strength magnets, um, rare earth magnets, excuse me, that are necessary for wind power generation or the lithium nickel and cobalt that are used in lithium ion batteries um, or the copper used as wiring to distribute electricity. Um, I believe that the electrification really across the world uh, is a major trend currently being overlooked by most investors, even within the mining industry. Um, and I think the potential for major incremental demand increases for each of the metals I've mentioned is very real as this trend continues. For me, the greatest opportunity comes from, from the metal nickel. I'm not a huge fan of Elon Musk, but I will agree wholeheartedly with the statement that lithium-ion batteries should really be renamed, quote, nickel-ion batteries. This is particularly true as battery manufacturers transition to increasingly nickel-rich cathode chemistries. Just a few years ago, the average NCM cathode was by weight one-third nickel, one-third cobalt, and one-third manganese. Today, the fastest growing cathode chemistry is the 811, which is 80% nickel, 10% cobalt, and 10% manganese. The shift in chemistries is a result of battery makers reducing cobalt dependency due to security of supply concerns and also ethical concerns. This has huge implications for class one nickel demand, but as of yet, this narrative is still relatively unknown amongst the investment community. In the MJG fund, we have three nickel-focused holdings in the portfolio, two of which are Dea Resources and Sama Resources I wrote about in the fund's most recent investor letter. Depending on one's risk tolerance, I would suggest that there are three ways to intelligently position oneself's portfolio in nickel. Um, the first is through high-quality producers of nickel sulfide, like ASX-listed Western areas. The second is through promising nickel sulfide explorers and developers, like SAMA on the Ivory Coast or Talon Metals in Minnesota. And finally, I think that well-capitalized owners of large laterite resources in hospitable jurisdictions, aka the optionality plays, such as Cleantech and Ardea, are poised to do well in the years ahead. These names I've just mentioned are, of course, not recommendations and instead should be viewed as examples of the kind of nickel companies I'm looking at through this framework. Trilogy Metals is a world-class developer in Alaska's Ambler Mining District. The company already possesses 8 billion pounds of high-grade copper, 3 billion pounds of zinc, over 1 million gold-equivalent ounces, and over 77 million pounds of cobalt. Trilogy's Arctic project boasts an after-tax net present value of $1.4 billion, with a 33% internal rate of return. Trilogy is led by an experienced management team with proven success in discovering and developing projects in Alaska. The company is well-capitalized has no debt, and possesses strong institutional support. Trilogy trades in New York and Toronto under the ticker TMQ. To learn more, go to TrilogyMetals.com. That's TrilogyMetals.com. So Rick Rule and Adrian Day, uh, two of the people that uh, you look to up to as a fund manager, they both really like the prospect generator 
model. Um, what's your thoughts on this model of business? I see that your fund is uh, heavily invested in prospect generators. Absolutely. So about a quarter of our portfolio is exposed to the prospect generation uh, business model on a weighted basis. Um, and, and this is my favorite way to conduct mineral exploration. Um, as many of your uh, listeners may be aware, uh, this business model entails um, a highly uh, qualified geological team um, staking multiple properties, ideally in, in one jurisdiction or one, one type of, of uh, mineral occurrence that management specializes in. And rather than using shareholder funds to advance and, and ultimately drill um, these projects, instead the goal is to attract um, larger entities, um, generally uh, major miners, ideally, um, to come in and drill the projects themselves. And in a best case scenario for these prospect generators, um, they will maintain you know, 20 to 30% of the prize if something is ultimately found. So I think this, this business model is all about minimizing share dilution um, while getting as many shots on target as possible. Um, to me, the upside that uh, exists with the potential miner mineral discovery is so high that it's greedy to me to, to want anything more as an investor than 20 to 30% of the ultimate prize. Um, I'd rather have a bunch of shots on target and have other companies spending their own money to advance these these assets. Because again, this is a very high risk business, as you know, and the vast majority of targets, um, even the most promising ones, don't ultimately pan out. Um, I do believe that dilution is the number one enemy of junior mining industry. And so this business model was created to, to combat that. Um, when evaluating prospect generators, um, aside from management uh, quality, which is the very first thing I'll look at, um, there are generally three metrics I'll, I'll use to evaluate the company's value. The first is a look at the company's fully diluted enterprise value relative to its, to its synthetic revenue. And synthetic revenue is, is a term used to describe the expected partner expenditures over the next 12 months. So as an investor, the lower this ratio, the, the better it is. And, and it demonstrates value. Um, the second metric I look at is the company's fully diluted market cap relative to the value of its cash and marketable securities. Uh, this is a particularly useful metric in down markets or in bear markets, as it shows the company's downside risk um, under the uh, implication that the company's working capital balance will be the, the most that the company can fall, which of course isn't always the case, but is generally a decent assumption. And then finally, I'll look at the company's working capital position um, divided by its monthly burn rate. And this shows to me the company's financing risk and whether the prospect generator is worthy of open market buying. Of course, if, the, if I see that the company only has six to 12 months um, before it needs to come back to raise money, as an investor, I'd much rather just sit on my hands and wait for the private placement to occur rather than buying in the open market. There are those hybrid prospect generator royalty companies like EMX Royalty. Uh, what are your thoughts here? Do you prefer this, of course, above the pure prospect generators? Yeah, so personally, I, I do think that the prospect generator business model is evolving more to this, this royalty setup. Um, to me, EMX has been doing this for, for over a decade now, and Dave Cole knows what he's doing with royalties. Um, ultimately, it's it's there's a lot of debate in the industry um, of the value versus of a royalty versus a project level stake. Um, I would argue that 
in some cases, and it depends on the stage of the project, and it also depends on the on the terms of, of the project level stake, i.e. is it carried through production, is it carried through a construction decision, et cetera. But I'd say your average 2% royalty is maybe w- worth a 20% project level stake, um, d- depending on the circumstance. Um, I, I do appreciate what companies like EMX are doing. Um, in my mind, I still view EMX as a prospect generator, but its goal over the next year or two is to get into a position where the market begins valuing it as a, as a royalty company. And if they're successfully able to do that, um, it should be very lucrative for, for EMX shareholders um, as the price to cash flow ratio seen by some of the higher quality royalty companies are, are pretty high. So I think that's a smart goal for companies in EMX's position. And, and there are a few others out there that are trying to replicate this project generator to royalty model. Matt, I'd like for you to share some of your insights with uh, the resource investors that are listening to us, particularly the newer resource investors that are listening to us. What are some of the most common mistakes that you see from newer resource investors that you'd like to advise them on? So I'll, I'll touch on two big ones. Um, and, and the first of which I've, I've mentioned in a previous answer in this interview, um, I'd say Maybe the biggest uh, mistake that I see is when newer investors buy common shares of junior companies that need to raise money in the next next six to 12 months. While it can be really tempting to sometimes get involved with these stories, particularly if there's a big catalyst occurring in the meantime, I think over a career as a junior resource investor, it is a good practice to always sit on your hands and and wait for the private placements, um, which which often include warrants. So... You know, I, I would say from an investment perspective, really, unless the company has over 12 months of runway, I'd go that far. I'd rather just not buy on the open market, evaluate the private placement when it comes. And if you like the terms as, as an investor, then go for it then. Otherwise, just pass on the opportunity. And I think for your listeners that aren't able to participate in private placements, that's fine. That just means that those those investors need to avoid companies that are perpetually coming back to market entirely. And for those investors, they should be even more extreme and focus on you know the, the juniors, and there aren't many of them out there, but there are juniors that have healthy cash positions of eight, 10, 15 million dollars in the bank and runways of you know 18 to 24 months before having to worry about a capital raise. So if any of your listeners can't participate in private placements, they should focus their investment um, due diligence to companies that fall into that category. And then I'd say the the second um, piece of advice is similar, Um, and and this is not to buy common shares of companies within four months of having to raise a placement, um, or within four months of the company having raised a placement, um, especially when this placement includes warrants. Um, these investors need to wait for the four-month hold period to end and for the warrant clippers to, to exit the story. Because generally, if there are warrants included in the placement, you will have a certain type of investor that four months and one day after the placement occurs will sell their initial position and, and keep the warrants for, for upside. Um, I, I will throw in there that we don't participate in this, in this type of warrant clipping behavior. Um, I think over the short term, it's a, it's a good way to make money. But if you plan to be in this space for a long time and that's your, your pattern of action, then you'll eventually be placed out of the very best deals because companies don't want these types of investors in the deals. But, but I digress. As, as a retail investor, if you've seen a company raise money, do not buy common shares no matter what for at least four months. 
wait for that hold period to lift. Um, there will likely be weakness at that time, and, and then you can enter the story. Um, I know it can be really tempting to chase that latest <laughs> Eric Sprott investment, but again, I'd, I'd wait to do so after the four-month hold lifts, if at all. What are your general thoughts when it comes to management compensation for uh, junior mining companies, and how can that compensation package increase from like a pre-discovery explorer to a late-stage development company? Yeah, so it's hard to give a an exact answer for this. Um, I would say in general, and these are rough numbers, um, I want to see the prospect generators and the single asset explorers in our portfolio burning less than 125,000 Canadian on a monthly basis and hopefully sub 100,000 Canadian. Uh, that to me shows that that management's being disciplined, disciplined with shareholder dollars and, and putting money into the ground. Um, and I hope for all of our com companies, at least 80% of the money raised ultimately makes it into either drilling um, or economic studies or permitting or what have you versus GNA and, and marketing expenses. Um, I think for the development stage companies, those that have already made a discovery and are, are advancing the project through the, the mineral exploration curve towards production, um, I'd want to see a monthly uh, overhead of less than 200,000 Canadian per month. And then on the production front, in terms of producing companies and royalty companies, um, obviously there are big differences between single asset and multi-asset producers. Um, but ideally, I'd want to see no more than 300,000 to 350,000 Canadian um, per month um, uh, in, 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 in overhead. Um, I'll also add in there, and this is one area of, of focus that Neil Adshed, as I mentioned earlier in this call, has been really drilling into, is the prevalence of change of control clauses that have sprouted up amongst the North American mining industry. Um, this is a sneaky way for management to increase their ultimate compensation, and it also uh, misaligns um, management um, from, from shareholders as they are incentivized to, in, in some cases, um, get an acquisition um, at all costs, regardless of the, of the ultimate share price or value of that deal. And so this is another you know, sneaky thing that investors should look at when they're, when they're analyzing the overall compensation of a, of a given company. Yeah, and we on this podcast, I spoke with Will Thompson, Battery Metals uh, fund manager, and we talked about the Cobalt 27 deal and how the management is going to make uh, millions off of selling the company, even though the share price has been performing terribly over the last year. And so the, the lower the share price goes, the lower the valuation of the company goes, possibly the more likely it is to be to find a buyer. So in that sense, if, if the management is looking for a windfall through these change of control clauses, then they're, like you said, their incentives are not lined up with the shareholders. Yeah, they're, they're truly incentivized to drive down the price of the company because the cheaper the company gets, assuming that there is real value there, the more likely that a bigger party comes in and ultimately buys them out. So again, yeah, change of the control clauses is, is a pretty big and somewhat new challenge for the industry, um, particularly in North America. We, we don't have this, this issue um, in Australia, 
um, due to the requirement of shareholder votes. There's just stricter requirements down there. And that could be something for the North American mining industry to look into because this is hampering investor interest in our space. Matt, as you know, there's quite a learning curve to learn how to invest successfully in the mining sector. Not only do you need to read the technical books, but it's good to read those uh, biographies and those stories that can inspire and teach. Are there any uh, mining related biographies that you'd like to recommend to my listeners? Absolutely, yeah. I'll throw out a couple a couple names for for your listeners here. Um, the first is the Bonanza King, uh, which only came out last year in 2018. Um, it's an amazing retelling of uh, John Mackey's uh, Rag to Riches story, um, thanks to the discovery of the Comstock Lode mine um, outside of Virginia City, Nevada. Um, the book provides great color on the histories of both California and Nevada. And also the um, development of modern day San Francisco, which was uh, ironically financed by the gold and silver that was pulled out of the Comstack load. Um, I, I find that ironic myself, uh, you know, living in San Francisco. And, and nowadays, this is the furthest from a, a mining city as you can get. But that, that wasn't the case, you know, just 130 years ago in the 60s, 70s, 80s and uh, 1890s. Um, a couple other ones. Um, no Guts, No Glory. Uh, this is a, a tougher one to find online, but I think there are still issues out. Um, this chronicles the Lundeen story um, that was started by the late uh, Adolf Lundeen and is now carried on by uh, by his son, Lucas. Um, I also really enjoyed The, the Big Score, um, which is about Robert Friedland's discovery of Voises Bay um, through Diamond Fields International. And then the subsequent four and a half billion dollar uh, takeout uh, by Inco. Um, another one that's less well known is called uh, Colonel Green and the Copper Skyrocket. <laughs> it's a, f a fun name on that one. Uh, this is a story about William Green, um, who is a forgotten copper baron from the early 1900s. Um, and he was the founder of the Cananea Consolidated Copper Company. Um, in northern Mexico, in, in Sonora, Mexico, and a, a really interesting uh, read. Um, one other one uh, is The King of Oil, um, and this is the story of the controversial Mark Rich, um, who founded uh, what is now Glencore, and in the 90s was maybe the, <laughs> the most infamous uh, global fugitive <laughs> that the world had ever seen. So that, that's one filled with, uh, filled with intrigue. And then finally, this is non-mining related, but still has to do with resource extraction. Um, the book is King of California, um, and it's the story behind the J.G. Boswell Company, um, which is the secret uh, California farming empire, um, which is the largest owner of private water rights in the state, and actually the largest uh, producer of cotton in the entire United States. Neither of those facts are particularly well known. And the benefactor of, of this company, his, uh, his famous quote is that the land is just dirt, but the water is gold, which I think gives you a, a sense for what this company's ethos has been over the past 100 plus years. So I think all of these are particularly excellent reads, um, especially for those of us who are investors uh, in this industry. 
um, both fun um, and and also uh, thought provoking as well. I read some of those books. I knew of some, but haven't read them. And there were some I haven't re- even heard of. So you just uh, increased my need to purchase book lists. So thank you for that. You've been listening to Matt Geiger, the managing partner of MJG Capital. His website is mjgcapital.com. If you'd like to reach him, I'm sure you can do so through that website. Matt, really appreciate you joining me. Thanks for your insights today. Thanks, Bill. Look forward to discussing again soon. Silver One Resources is an exploration and development company backed by strategic investors Eric Sprott and SSR Mining. The company is focused on its Candelaria Mine Project in Nevada, where there is already a historic resource estimated at 127 million ounces of silver. The Candelaria Mine historically was the highest grade silver producer in Nevada, generating over 68 million ounces of silver at an amazing average production rate of over 1,250 grams per ton. The project has tremendous expansion potential as past drilling has out deeper, high-grade silver targets for future drill programs. Silver One is highly leveraged to the price of silver and is cashed up and poised to increase shareholder value. Silver One trades in New York under the ticker SLVRF and in Toronto under the ticker SVE. To learn more, go to silverone.com. That's silverone.com. Thank you for listening to this Mining Stock Education podcast. Please subscribe and share with like-minded investors. Visit us on the web at miningstockeducation.com for more resources on precious metals and natural resource investing. At our website, you can also sign up for our free newsletter for interview transcripts, stock picks, and more. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.